We're going to go ahead and jump right in. As I said, and as Eliza said, this is the first Sunday of Advent, and uh, for those of you who may not be historically um, in tune with the church calendar, this is actually the beginning of the Christian calendar, is the beginning of Advent, so the calendar starts from today. And um, as such, the church begins focusing on the birth of Christ, and um, to this morning is, is the, the celebration of, of hope. And what follows, um, I've tried to blend three things together. Um, we've come out of a series of messages on the covenants, and um, I wanted to kind of pick up that strand, as well as I kind of wanted us to move into a kind of a mission direction in terms of like how does this work itself out in our lives and our neighborhoods and so forth. But blended with this, that is an experience that I had this last week that really kind of shaped the message, and that's... Um, that's how this message was formed, is a combination of those three things. Beginning with this last week. So if you were here in second service, you noticed I wasn't here afterwards. Well, I scurried out after I prayed because I needed to catch a 320 plane in Sacramento. And so, um, and it was the last day of Thanksgiving weekend, so I wasn't sure if there was going to be traffic. So I got in my truck and I went up there. Of course, my flight was delayed. And... Um, <laughs> I flew to, to San Diego where I, Monday through Friday, 8 to 5 in the afternoon, attended um, an intense series of courses on what it means to be a, a chaplain, um, a volunteer chaplain. I just want to say that. Don't worry, I'm not leaving. I'm just like, there is a, there, you know, I've always, I've, I've been praying, Lord, how would you have me best um, connect into the unbelieving community or the community that I live in, not just as a pastor, but as something else. And there's an overlap between what pastors do and chaplains do, but it's very different. So um, I went down there with a certain amount of fear and trepidation because it's a, uh, I didn't know what to expect, and I wasn't sure who was going to be there. And, and so um, I got there at uh, 8 o'clock in the morning, um, and the class was 16 of us. And um, we're from a lot of different places in life. Um, 14 of us were ministers from various denominations, and two were from um, two different functions in a police department. One was a, uh, a police chief, and the other was a, a dispatcher. And we were all there to learn about the ministry of chaplaincy. Well, as I said, of those 16, 14 were ministers, and it was, it was an experience of diversity. So, because it's not restricted to what we would consider to be biblically conservative evangelical Christians. So, I had a Roman Catholic priest at my table, super awesome guy, one of the nicest guys I've ever met. I had a conservative Lutheran minister from Missouri Synod. I had a Presbyterian minister. PCA, Presbyterian Church of America, part of the conservative wing of Presbyterianism. And then I had this Lutheran minister who was, I found out, the very first ordained lesbian minister in the evangelical Lutheran church in America who has a wife and kids. So that was my first day of class. And um, you know, I, if you've been here, where we stand in terms of our understanding of the Bible and morality and sexuality and so forth. But this was a, a course in which we were working on the process of what it means to be chaplains. And it was interesting to see a lot of my conservative brothers treat this person who was very different than us with dignity and respect and love, which was good. That's how God has called us to live in this world where there's people that we disagree with is that we show respect and dignity as people created in the image of God. But that's all backstory, okay? Just diverse, it's uncomfortable at points, but, but good for me, right? To be in a place where I'm stretched. That all is backstory to uh, uh, two people that I met who were in that group. 
a husband-wife combo. They were probably late 50s, early 60s. And uh, they, sh- they share their story of how they have been involved in, in various community crises. And I just was so inspired and at another level just convicted to, to, to open my eyes as a result of their story. So this couple, and they're, they're volunteers, um, they decided they were going to join and be trained by uh, what is called the Billy Graham Rapid Response Team. I didn't even know that that organization existed, but it is a, a group of Christian people who have banded together and have been trained on what to do in crisis situation where there's something that happens in a community or in the country, they mobilize or deployed and they meet with people in their time of crisis need and their pain. So this couple were sharing how they were deployed or mobilized after the shootings last month in um, Thousand Oaks, right? You know, there's, the reports on the news were like, 12 people shot in a bar. I found out afterwards from people who were actually there that it's, it's not in a bar in the sense that we think of a bar. We tend to think of a bunch of pagans getting drunk at a bar. Um, it's, it wasn't like that. It was like the bar was detached, and it was mostly people who got, gathered together for line dancing, and a lot of those were college students. And that's the context in which the shootings were done. And so, and in the aftermath of this horrible event... They were mobilized, this husband and wife went to the scene, and she described it as, she used the word like sticky. She said, the grief was so palpable, and so, there was so much like emotional carnage, you could just feel it in the air. It's a really hard thing to walk walk into without being personally, um, without it sticking to you as a person. They showed up on scene just to comfort people, um, listen to people, and pray for people. And that, that, that part you don't hear in the news. You hear about their first responders, praise the Lord for them. But in the aftermath, there are these people, both Christians and non-Christians alike, lost people. Some of the students were from Pepperdine. Grieving. And here in, like kind of first on the scene for emotional support, care, and help are these Christian chaplains. I'm just like, man, I wish that would have been in the news. So here, I'm going to show just a, because I want you to hear it, um, the lady that told the story to us who was part of our group, her name's Diane, and she's in this short little video clip. I don't do videos very often, but I just want you to hear it and feel it for yourself. And if you're thinking, why do we have to like talk about something or reflect on something negative on the first Sunday of Advent on hope? Well, listen, Christmas makes absolutely no sense without an understanding of death, sin, and evil. No point whatsoever. So just, it's less than a minute. All day today, we have seen a transformation in this community where people have begun to really grieve. I was the first girl right there, saw exactly what he looked like when he first came in, saw the gunshot, saw everything, saw them both go down. Um, Yeah, I ran out the back kitchen where he ended up killing himself. So it's actually really scary. It happened within three minutes. I used to be in band with one of the guys who was uh, killed, unfortunately, and it's hard. I don't know. It was nice to come here and be able to cry and be okay, and for somebody to put their arm around you and not go, you know, ask you questions or what's the matter or you should you shouldn't cry. I I just was devastated. Um, I. I uh, there's no more. 
The crosses are here, the memorials here, and the people are here. And so we are here as chaplains to bring that comfort and that hope in Christ. That was November 7th. On November 8th, you remember the campfire started? You know, just completely incinerating the, the city of uh, Paradise or the town of Paradise. Well, they were deployed to that too. Same couple, right? To deal with and help people who are searching for questions and in pain over the loss of their things. And I'm, I at one point asked the couple, I was like, oh, are, do you do this full time? I was like, no. Like, this is what we do volunteer. I work for Com Edison, and it just so happens he has like 52 weeks a year of vacation, so he can do that. Not everybody can, right? That's what Ron Guffey has, 52 weeks. No, he has seven, and he's able to go and deploy, and it's just a, an amazing thing to watch Christians do that kind of thing. Instead of running away from the pain and the crisis, they actually run towards it. And, uh, and it, it, there was a story that just kind of hit me, and I just want you to experience a little bit of their story. And there's, a, there's, there's two things that struck me about it. One, one of course, is just a, uh, the reminder of what we already know, but we often don't, don't believe, and that is um, the world is so uncertain, right? Um, we think here in, in Fairfield that, that that's not really going to happen. Well, I'm pretty sure that the people connected with the Thousand Oaks um, massacre, they didn't wake up thinking that would happen either, but they found themselves in the middle of a nightmare, or to wake up on the morning of the 8th and think, well, everything's gonna be burned in my town. I'm pretty sure they didn't think of that too. But stuff like that just happens. Um, and statistically, happening here, I realize it's pretty low. But as Christians, we have to have our radar um, aware to the fact that this stuff does happen and the Bible says it's gonna happen. And according to Jesus, I think it's gonna happen with increasing frequency, like birth pangs, he said. So not to be surprised by it, but actually to be prepared for it and ready for it. And not just in the sense of bracing, but in the sense of how do I minister in a world that is so um, broken and so um, uncertain. And that's the second part that struck me is just watching Christians run towards it uh, as ministers of, of hope. And that's what I've been thinking about. Um, that's the convergence of here I got this covenant theme and there's this what's happened hearing the story last week. And, and the idea of just being um, of mission, of of how do I make an impact on our community or your neighborhood? And that led me to this. I wanted us to consider just this morning, and this is more devotional in nature than it is like a big theological presentation. It's just, what does it mean to be a person of hope? What does it mean to be a person of hope? Just looking at various three aspects of it. And one aspect of it, tying into our theme that we've been looking at, is that in order to be a person of hope, you have to know the Lord. That is, you have to be in covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ. There's no hope and there's no welling up of hope. There's no experience of hope without faith that God, in fact, has committed himself to you in covenant. So let me just, I want to take you on a, a quick, quick journey. It's, it's about a minute long to underscore something that we have pointed out over the past six weeks. We have distilled down the essence of all of the biblical covenants where God promises or God covenants by way of condition himself to his people. And at the center of it, the phrase that happens or the sentence that happens over and over and over again is this, is that I will be their God and they will be my people. 
Now, there's different formulations of it, slightly different word changes. Sometimes it's shorthand with only half of it, but it all means the same basic thing. We will be God's and God, God will be ours. That's, that's the essence of it. And we've looked at it um, on a number of occasions, but one-minute journey, just so you see that this is part of the, like the core of the Bible that, that runs its way through all of God's commitments to sinful people. God comes to Abraham, Genesis 17, 18. This is the shorthand version, and I will be their God. He comes to Moses, says that he's going to establish a covenant. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. Speaking to Moses and to the people of Israel through Moses, he says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and be their God. Jeremiah, the prophet who's speaking to those in exile who broke the covenant, he reminds them that God has not given up on the heart of these covenant commitments. I will be your God and you shall be my people. 11.4, so shall you be my people and I will be your God. 30.22, and you shall be my people and I will be your God. 31.33, which talks about the new covenant. It's the same heart. It's I will be their God and they shall be my people. Ezekiel, who also spoke to those in exile, people thrust out of the land because of unfaithfulness. Again, reminding them of the heart of what he's going to do. And you shall be my people and I will be your God. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. Again, Ezekiel, that they may be my people and I may be their God, declares the Lord. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. Ezekiel 37, 23, um, 37, 27. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall be my people and I will be their God in faithfulness and righteousness, Zechariah 8, 8. So, and that's not exhaustive, just to say it's like, if you can imagine a big bass drum, like beating from the beginning of time, beating through the, through the ages and through the millennia, it's like boom, boom, one constant message that you will be my people and I will be your God. It just keeps beating all the way through Abraham, Moses, and the prophets. It's the heart of it. And I love to pay attention to the little words. The possessive pronouns, their, your, or my, as in my, you, we heard it, my, 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 oh my, we heard. It's amazing what one little possessive pronoun communicates. If I was to introduce you to my, my son Isaac and say, this is a son, you'd be like, a son among many, a son of somebody else, or maybe I'd change it to this is the son. Well, that's a little bit better because it suggests he has some sense of definitiveness. He's the son. Son of who? But when you say, this is, I want to introduce you to my son, there's like, oh, he's your son. He's like, there's mutually mutual belonging there. There's a sense of devotion and relationship and love and protection and provision. It's like, oh, this is your son. That's possessive. It brings a whole different layer of relational devotion. Or can you imagine saying your wedding vows like this? I, John, 
take you, Jane, to be a lawfully wedded wife? Are we polygamists? A lawfully wedded wife, one amongst many? Are we Mormon? Oh, yeah, some Mormons still practice polygamy. Don't boo me. Come on, there's a difference. No, we don't. We say, like, I, John, take you, Jane, to be my lawfully wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, until death do us part. In other words, there's, it's a unique relationship. Then the female turns around and says, I, Jane, take you, John, to be my lawfully wedded husband, to have and to hold from this day forward in sickness and health and so forth, until death do us part. Like, that's just not any relationship. That's like... A bound relationship that is one of devotion and commitment and loyalty and love and compassion and affection and everything in between. It's so special. You can't read the Bible when you read the theirs and the yours and the mys as just general language. It's like, no, you will be my people. And I will be your God, like bound together and not till death do us part, but forever and ever. Just how I said the Bible, I mean, it's redundant. The Bible's all the time redundant. Why do you have to say things twice, three times, four times? Why do you have to say forever and ever? Just forever makes the point. Why be redundant? Because we need it. Forever and ever you will be my people, my people, and I your God. That's the heart of it. And to know there's no hope apart from knowing that God is my God and I am his son or his daughter or we are his people and he's bound himself to us in the person of his son. And we have looked at this and just to say it so the gospel's presented. Like Jesus came, was born, lived and died to meet all of the conditions of the covenants, the perfection demanded and the curse for failure. He took it all so that we could experience the my and the your and the there forever with him. And that's our confidence. No matter what happens, no matter who has cancer this next year, if you, you're facing old age, you're facing loneliness, whatever it is, the confidence is to know that no matter what happens, I belong to God. He's my father, he's my king, and he is my savior. Like, and to live in the confidence of that. If, if you... That is the most rooted, foundational reality that one can possibly realize. There's no hope apart from that. So that's, that's part of what, it, the, the beginning part, the, the foundation of what it means to be a person of hope. Without that, there's nothing else. To be in covenant relationship with God and to understand what he's done to make the my a reality. Moving to part two. A person of hope is also someone who longs for the future finality of that covenant. That is, there's a future dimension to it. We're not there yet. We're still broken. We still sin. We still have crises. We have shootings. We have earthquakes in Alaska. We're part of a world that is still unstable and marred with evil and corruption. And while we should feel confidence that we are already gods now, and, and, and he is already our God now, there's this future point where it will become a material and physical reality. Paul himself said in 1 Corinthians 13, 
with all of his illumination and the revelation and all of his giftedness and understanding theology and what God has done, he still said, right now we see through a mirror dimly, like the experience we have of God is still dim. But then, at some future point, when the covenant is fully and completely realized, then we shall see face to face. That's the finality of it. That's the completeness of it. It's like a a bride coming in the back door and a husband seeing her face to face and going, yes, now's the time where all that we've waited for is now brought to conclusion. And so here you have, if you imagine this drumbeat, I will be their God and they will be my people. Boom, 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 through the centuries and through the millennia of time. And God's saying this is going to happen. And most of the time he's talking about shall be and will be. Future. Shall be and will be. And then you get to the very end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. And for the first time, the will be and shall be is changed to an is. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God. That's the next word. Don't you love present tense is? No no more will be or shall be. It's like is. Someday it's going to be an is. It's just going to be reality. We're not going to have to speak in future tenses like I sure hope that's going to happen someday. No, it's going to be a reality, a living, physical, material reality. New heavens, new earth, face to face with God as a redeemed people. And until we get there, we have to live in hope. But hope has to be more than just a statement in a creed. Like, I believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting, the Apostles' Creed. It has to be more than a song that we sing. If it's just a lyric, if it's just a statement in a creed, but it doesn't live in the human heart, then it's really not hope. You think about what hope is in real life or in ordinary, I should say ordinary life. Hope is animated. It's, it preserves, it's energy, it moves, it has motion to it, it has attraction and gravity towards it. Wherever, whatever the object of hope is, the heart is gravitationally pulled towards so if there's no gravitational pull, if there's no orientation, if there's no desire, there's no hope. It's just a statement. It's supposed to go beyond thought and into the heart. It's supposed to indwell. It's supposed to live like a, a living being. You know how migratory birds, like they don't have to think about flying south. They just have it in their heart. They're like, going south now, we're all going together, and they fly in a V, so they're all going south, because they're compelled to go south. That's how hope is to live. It's I'm compelled to look forward to the end. Like, I'm, I can't help but long for it. That's, that's hope in dwelling, and that's what the apostle Peter had in mind when he's speaking to people in the midst of suffering. The chapter 1 of 1 Peter and chapter 3 of 1 Peter teach us that the people are experiencing adversity. They were, there was whatever the crises were, He tells them to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is, next word, in you. Not over you, to you, or for you. But in you, like in your soul, in your heart, that migratory gravitational pull. And it's visible. 
Like somehow it's visible. How do we know that? Because people are asking about it. We don't know whether it's, you can see hope in their eyes. You know, you can see hope in a person's eyes. It's just like light. Or maybe it's in the content or the tone in which they speak, like in the middle of suffering. They still speak with a sense of joyful confidence, even though they're in pain. It doesn't say, but, but what is true is it's visible enough that people are going to ask you like, <laughs> okay, usually um, sickness plus a person equals depression. This is suffering in you, and you still have light in your eyes. And you're still speaking hopefully. What gives? Well, let me tell you about the reason. God has covenanted himself through me, through Jesus Christ, and he has promised that one day I have a face-to-face meeting with him, and all this will be over. See? But it's supposed to dwell in you. And if it doesn't dwell in you, you've got to go back to part one. Do you live in covenant relationship with God? Do you, if you surrender yourself saying, all right, God, I need you, I'm going to trust that you have done everything necessary for me in Jesus Christ, and I want to embrace it, I want to know this hope. And then to see that hope begin to take over your life. It matures and it strengthens over a lifetime. It doesn't always just fall on you all at once, but it's supposed to dwell in you. Dwell in you. A couple months ago, people were asking me, they're asking my wife, uh, so how are things going? It's like, part of the answer of how are things going is, Allie's coming home in 53 days. If you don't know Allie, she's my daughter. She's in Israel, and we haven't seen her in three and a half months. And it's like, you know, we talk about her. Been texting her, getting excited. You're coming home pretty soon. Hey, my flights, I got my flights. I am getting ready to board my flight. And we are excited because we hope to see her. And you know what it comes out in speech? It comes out in excitement. You ask me about her, and it's in our eyes. And praise be to the Lord, today's the day. So I don't care if the sermon is horrible. Because <laughs> right now I'm living in hope, you know what I'm saying? This is like, and that's tangible. I get it. Like, I can touch it. It's happening in my time frame. But listen, like, part of a big part of the Christian faith is to live in faith, hope, and love. And part of that hope is just to know, Lord, I want to see the day when I don't have to do another funeral. I don't want to have to go and look another woman in the eye who has lung cancer and her looking at me and saying, I have like a week. I don't want to have to forever have to deal with my own heart and the struggles that I have and the struggles that you have. And the day is coming when we will hear that final drum go, the dwelling place of God is with them. Let the hope dwell in you. You can see a big, I can see a big difference on a person who's dying in a hopeless situation. There's nothing there, just a hollow hopelessness. And someone who faces death, and you can tell there's hope in their eyes. 
You want to know what a person of hope is? It's someone who has a, a real relationship with God through Christ. It's a person in whom living hope dwells. And the third and final part brings us to this idea of like mission. We have a world around us, as you already know, they're living right next door to you. They're all around our community, in our country, of people who have absolutely no hope. Their, their, their biggest hope is where am I gonna go on vacation this year? Or their biggest hope is I hope the test comes back negative for cancer. And they need to rub shoulders with people who have hope in dwelling. And that's, that brings us to, to you and me and, and the world in which we live. It's, it's difficult, nay impossible, for someone to receive hope if there's no one to show them hope or to speak of hope. Which means part of the Christian mission is to make sure that your life is lived next to somebody, at least at certain points, who don't know the Lord. Or to, when you see it, move toward pain or need or brokenness rather than away from it. That is the um, example set for us by the Father and Son themselves. It's like, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. How did the Father send the Son? Well, he sent him down from his throne in heaven, which was a perfect place, into the darkness, into human corruption, to rub shoulders with not too nice a people, people who would put him to death on a cross, so that he could actually be a means and a communication of divine hope. How is hope communicated where there is not connection, or connection is the wrong word, where there is not a meeting between light and darkness? And that brings me to a reflection on how easy it is and how subtle it is as a Christian to become more and more insulated from corruption and discomfort. Think about this for a minute. Right? Like, as you grow from teenage years into adult years, there's all of these, like, by necessity, transitions that are scary. They're risky. They're uncomfortable. So you gra- graduate high school, and maybe it's going off to the military, and you're, you find yourself facing boot camp. You're like, <laughs> that's scary. That's scary. It's risky. It's uncomfortable. Been there, done that, and some of you have too. Or maybe you're going off to college. It's a brand new situation, new dorms, maybe a new roommate, new classes, new homework, new um, intensity of work and study. And it's a scary place to be, but like life catapults you into this risky, uncomfortable place. Or even if it's just into a, just into it, even if it's into some other form of vocation, it's like scary, it's new. You graduate college or you get out of the military and next thing you know, you're looking for a vocation. That too is scary. It's risky and it's uncomfortable. It's like new workplace, new boss. I don't know what his expectations are. Can I do the work? It's scary, uncomfortable, and risky. And then the next major transition, depending on the chronology of your life, might be, well, I'm, I really want to be married. And so you start dating. And that's a risky thing. Well, I'd be rejected, accepted. If we decide to tie the knot, Will it work itself out? It's just like uncomfortable, risky, scary. 
then when you do get married and you find out, hey, it worked. Then you decide, we're going to have babies. Is that risky and scary? <laughs> oh, I was scared to death. It's our first, I took, you know, you, our, our, our Daniel, you know, they hand him to us. I have two degrees by this time, and, and uh, they hand us this baby, and I'm thinking, I'm not qualified for this. I can do other things, but I'm not qualified for this. And it's a really scary, uncomfortable thing to take this baby home and know, if I don't do my job, the baby dies. It's true. Bringing kids through teenage years, is it scary and risky? Absolutely. Still scary and risky and uncomfortable. All that to say, you look at all that, that pattern of those transitions of life, and it's, it constantly pushes you to deal with uncomfortable, risky, fearful situations by necessity. And yet somehow, later in life, it's, it's kind of like things level off. And, and you're not pushed to take risks. Things become a little bit more comfortable. And you kind of like it that way. There's just not the same kind of transitions. And what happens very subtly is that you begin to become insulated because now you can live in a little bit more comfort. You're not pushed to the risky place. And oftentimes what happens is in that insulation, we choose not to do uncomfortable or risky things. Now, in one sense, I'd have to say, as we age, there is a sense in which we slow down. I cannot run as fast today as I could when I was 19, not even close. That's a biological change. But there's some people who would say, well, that's, apart from biology, that's the normal course. It's like you have your early life when you're busting through the barriers and you're taking risks, and, and then later in life, you just kind of just flow. That's how the normal pattern of life is. And I just want to say, maybe for carnal man, as in maybe for the person who's not following the Lord who often leads us into uncomfortable and risky places, did God not call Abraham to leave later in life? A little uncomfortable? Oh, uh, yeah, really uncomfortable and, and risky from a human sense. Moses was asked to go back down into Egypt to face Pharaoh in roughly 80 years of age. Hey, Lord, I'm sorry, but this doesn't fit the trajectory. I'm supposed to, like, be chilling out, insulated. My kids are already grown up. This is not for me. I was like... Go down, Moses, right? That's what he said. Get down there. That's what you do. You know, the, 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 the young Marine does not have the freedom to say to his commander-in-chief, yeah, not really. Not going to take that hill. Not in the cards for me. I'm insulated. I'm just asking you. I realize biologically we slow down with age. But it seems to me that faith only grows as we are stretched, as we're willing to follow the Lord in uncomfortable situations, as we're willing to experience what we experience as riskiness. Rather than conforming to the pattern of our culture, which says, now's the time to be comfortable. So what are you going to do? What am I going to do? 
like to go out and, and be in any way, shape, or form touching someone in pain or need is an uncomfortable place to be. It just is, for some of us more than others. But that's precisely where God communicates hope. And I have found that every time that I have followed the Lord, and I don't always do a great job at it, I have my own fears and my own insecurities. But when I take that step into the unknown, insecure, risky place, every time, if I knew he was calling me, every time he met me, and I was a different person afterwards than before. I came home, you know, late Friday night, actually really early Saturday morning, flew. All my flights were delayed. And I, I, I got home after a, you know, a, a, a stretching time for me. And um, Deanna asked me in the morning, hey, how did it go? I'm like, I am so full. At the end of the week, I, I had new friends. I was pushed. I was stretched. I found that my insecurities and fears were put aside, walking through the door like God just met me, and that's what he did. And that's what he does. He just, he meets you when you're like, okay, Lord, I, I, I know this is what you want me to do, and I'm going to take this step. And it could be any number of things. I'm not suggesting everybody should go off and um, become Billy Graham rapid response team people, although some of you might want to be. Like, hey, that sounds like something I'd, I'd be interested in doing. Well, start walking through that door. But there's needs all around us. There's pain all around us. And simply to recognize, if we're going to communicate hope, we have to get next to it, right? You have to get next to it. You have to be willing to be uncomfortable and take a risk and just get connected with it. And just more than half the battle is just showing up. It really is just showing up. It kind of goes from there. (laughs) I stumbled onto this because the needs are everywhere. I stumbled onto this a few, I don't remember how long ago. I think it was last winter. Deanna had um, some work she needed to do with a client who is in Roseville at a retirement home, like a senior's home. And uh, it was a dark and stormy night, and so she asked me if I'd drive, and so I drove, dropped her off at the front, and then I parked the car and ran in, and I was all wet by the time I got there. There was this nice fireplace with a you know, fire going. I'm like, that's exactly where I'm going to sit, where she deals with her business with this person. So I sat down on the hearth. And this, this is no lie, you have to ask Deanna. And this, this little old lady comes hollering up, and she sits down next to me. I'm like, well, this is uncomfortable. <laughs> and, um, you know, of course, just strike up conversation. So where are you from? You know, blah, blah, blah. And, oh, I, I have been there. I've, I've, I've been through there a lot of times, blah, blah, blah. Next thing you know, another little old lady, she comes in, she sits in a different chair. So I have two. There was another one in a wheelchair that came over. And I, I probably had five or six around me. And I don't know why they gathered around me. I am not Bradley Cooper. And I am, <laughs> I am not Patrick Dempsey. I'm just a bald guy sitting here. And obviously, I'm out of place. I am not supposed to be there. And they're just asking me questions, and I'm trying to ask questions. And they're like, what do you do, Sonny? And I'm like, I'm a pastor of a church, you know, having conversations. And it kind of gets down to the whole spiritual realm. And my wife comes around the corner, and she looks at me. I'm like, I need help. (laughs) I need help. It's just like, uh, it was an uncomfortable place. But you know, interesting. Why? As I reflect on that, what, what possessed these ladies to gather around? 
if not because each one of them in their own way is, is alone. People all around us are like that. And sometimes you just show up and you never know what's going to happen. Can you imagine someone just deciding, okay, I'm not going to take a big step. I'm just going to take a small step. And I am going to go to the retirement home on Rancho Solano Parkway once a week. And I'm going to bring my cards and I'm just going to sit at a table and see if anybody wants to play bridge. I bet you. <laughs> Pretty soon, you'll be playing bridge and you'll get to know Martha and Phyllis, Dorothy, and pretty soon you're gonna, they're going, Why, what are you here for us? You know, I love you guys. I just love being here. And, you know, you ever want to come to my church? Or and inevitably, if you're a person who has a mission heart, it's going to come around to that. So I say all this, church, because, you know, we, we have a great reason to hope. We have a relationship with God. That hope needs to be burning inside us. But we also especially for those of us who are midlife and older, need to be willing to be uncomfortable. Take a risk. Because we're not going to transmit hope to others if we stay isolated from the world. So my simple encouragement to all of us, especially this Christmas, pain comes to light at Christmas. Difficulties come to life at Christmas. Just have your eyes open and just don't run away from it. Run towards it. Amen. Can I get a little amen for that? Okay. Lord, I pray that you would um, give us eyes to see and ears to hear this Christmas season. And not just this Christmas season, but in the years ahead. I pray that we would not make excuses for avoiding discomfort. But we'd be willing to, as we sang a few moments ago, surrender it. Not just some of it, but surrender it all and say, Lord, where do you want me? And I'll go. And, um, And to watch you provide and fill us with your presence and your hope in Christ's name. Amen.